Okay, welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Our guest today is uh, a very, very prominent historian uh, with a unique uh, background. So our, our guest is Jane Hampton Cook. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Jane and we'll get into a, a great conversation. Jane is an award-winning author of 10 books, a national media commentator, columnist, a former White House communications staffer, and a presidential historian. Her passion is to inspire patriotism through her writings, historical scholarship, and TV appearances. Inspired by her 9-11 evacuation from the White House, Jane's feature film screenplay, Saving Washington, placed third out of 1,000 entries in ScreenCraft's 2018 drama screenwriting contest. Saving Washington is adapted from her book, The Burning of the White House, James and Dolly Madison and the War of 1812. Jane received a bachelor's degree from Baylor University, a master's degree in higher education administration from Texas A&M University, and a research fellowship from the Organization of American Historians and White House Historical Association. She began her career at Rice University and Texas A&M University before moving to the Texas governor's office and then the White House. She lives with her family in a Washington DC suburb. Welcome, Jane. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Such, a, such an honor to, uh, for you to take time out of your schedule for us. Let me start off with, um, as an author and historian, can you tell us about your background and what led you to become a writer and a historian? Well, my, my husband and I were in graduate school and began working at Texas A&M University when President George H.W. Bush placed his library at Texas A&M in 1997. And so we had an opportunity to be part of the planning of some of the activities that opened the library. And we realized, you know, we saw some of what we're seeing in our culture right now, um, the, the diversity, heavy diversity emphasis. We saw that in our graduate school program. And we realized that we might be better suited working in, you know, government. And so we, we changed ships, so to speak. And then we ended up working for uh, then Governor George W. Bush in Texas in the governor's office. And at the time, websites were new. And so I learned how to develop a website and design one and became a communicator through that media, uh, that medium. And that's that's kind of how we got into the political realm and moved up to Washington, D.C. But I never really left my writing roots, my scholarship roots. And I found that when I developed the White House website for President George W. Bush, that a lot of people would go to the biography section of the presidents. In fact, Abraham Lincoln's was the most popular web page on the White House website. And so I began to write about the history of the White House and what took place in the different rooms you see on TV. And I began to write about the history of the White House. And that's what led me when I left the White House in 2003. I had that fellowship from the White House Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians. I began doing research on the president and sort of just dove in and began writing books about, you know, different subjects. And I, it was the, the passion of patriotism, having served in the White House, especially having lived through 
and the surge of patriotism that followed that, that's what motivated me as a writer. And to tell these stories that a lot of Americans are unfamiliar with because we don't teach them necessarily in school. And that's what that's what kind of ignited my passion and what I've been doing, you know, ever since then. Well, oh, that's awesome. Um, which brings me to one of your books. You have 10 books out there, which is uh, incredible. Uh, in your book, Battlefields and Blessings, it's a compelling combination of history and faith. Mm-hmm. What led you to write this book? And how does our founders' history inform us for the present, considering the left's attempts through the 1619 Project and other efforts to tarnish the founders and rewrite history in the process? Well, I uh, had written a book called The Faith of America's First Ladies for a publisher. And they came to me and they said, hey, we've started this Battlefields and Blessings series. It's a devotional book. A series. They already had a devotional on the Civil War, and they said, pick pick a time period and do a devotional book. And so I picked the American Revolution, and I dove into the original sources that were avail- easily available at that time, which was were some books that Harvard had published with selected writings from the founders, and that became my basis of you know, learning about the American Revolution from the people who lived through it. And it really transformed me intellectually because I kind of went into it thinking, oh, maybe George Washington's overrated. You know, maybe he's really wasn't as great a leader as we've sort of been led to, to believe. And then I was just stunned at how wrong that thought was <laughs> and how remarkable his life really was and that he was a good listener, that he... Um, thought and put people above his own um, glory and reputation. And it, it just transformed me. And then I used their stories along with a scripture and a prayer to show you the American Revolution chronologically through 365 daily devotionals. And, you know, there are times when they, the founders wrote overtly about their faith. Uh, John Adams wrote about how a uh, pastor had read Psalm 35 to them and um, it talks about the lion and they thought of Great Britain as being the lion in that passage and that they were overcoming that, that they were contending against the great lion. And then sometimes you can just see um, an application, a spiritual application through a story that maybe doesn't overtly talk about God, but you can see you know, George Washington crossing the waters Um, crossing the Delaware, you could see how in Psalms, when it talks about, you know, that difficulty of getting, of of a rushing water, that kind of thing. And it just, that book in particular, probably more than any other book, transformed me. It gave me intellectual capital that I've continued to go back to. And as far as, you know, the 1619 Project, what's so distressing to me about that is that today, more than any other era in our history, we have access to the founders' writings at our fingertips. I couldn't go online and read the writings of George Washington when I wrote Battlefields and Blessings. I had to use sources that had printed his writings. Today, you can go to founders.archives.gov and read what the founders wrote. You can keyword search. And I do that a lot. And I think that is a counter to the 1619 project that tries to skew, 
you know, the birth date of the nation, when you can clearly see in the writings of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and their discussion uh, and reflections on the Declaration of Independence that the United States was born on July 4th, 1776. And I recently went back and I looked at some historical newspapers and did the same thing, keyword searching, which you could not do 10, 15 years ago because you had to look at microfilm in one newspaper at a time and you couldn't cross search by terms like you can now. And I looked to see, okay, what did America call itself in the newspapers prior to 1776? And they called themselves colonies. They began to call themselves United Colonies around January of 1776. And you do see this definitive switch to using the word United States for the first time on July 4th. And I think there were 600 plus uses of the word United States after July 4th for the rest of the, the year, the rest of 1776. And there were no references to before. And so that just, we're able to see now through the through technology things like that, that that historians could never have gone through every newspaper searching you know and looking for those kinds of answers and so i do think technology can help us um, because we can study something that the founder said or did and and come up with a, a deeper understanding of where they really stood or on some issues or how they grew you can see how they grew um, a lot of times in their writings over time, their opinions changed. Um, I recently discovered that George Washington never used the word democracy in his writings. And when I searched it, I found four hits and they were three of them were footnotes referring to a book in the footnote with the word democracy in it, not from something he said. And then the other was a speech that someone else wrote for him we don't really know if he used the word democracy he, in that speech, but he didn't use it. He used the word republic. And whereas John Adams used both, but whenever he talked about democracy, he was talking about ancient Greece. You know, he was looking at the historical context for, the, for, the, for a democracy. And he did a lot of study, uh, as did John, uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. They studied ancient history and how government worked and when it didn't work in history to come to craft, you know, the, the constitution. So. That is amazing, Jane. And when you were describing that, uh, I was thinking about the situation between Ukraine and Russia. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ukraine was essentially considered a colony of the Soviet Union, kind of in a right. sense along with right. other Eastern European nations now right. uh, that are now part of NATO. So that, that whole situation is, mm -hmm. is interesting to see how it's unfolding and, and to try to follow it objectively in the press. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you a question about that because I think it's still pretty raw uh, in terms right. of what's happening there. Right. But, um, but when you mentioned George Washington never mentioned democracy. Uh, I have been fascinated yeah. by memoirs written by former communists. And so mm -hmm. one of those that I was able to get a hold of through a bookstore in Great Britain, written by mm -hmm. Douglas Hyde, and the title of the book is I Believed. And he mm -hmm. was uh, 
training to become a, a minister when Ooh. after the First World War, Great Britain was suffering a lot of poverty and right. uh, joblessness and, and whatever. And so the conditions had been pretty much established that people were looking for a different way of life. And the Communist Party took advantage of that to really start recruiting people into their effort, which is the basis for the title, I believed. Uh, mm-hmm. After a while, he realized all the contradictions in the, the narratives mm-hmm. that they were expected to, to write about in the Daily Worker and other mm-hmm. leading publications, mm-hmm. that what they were telling was false. But yeah. what really caught my attention, he talked about how democracy was the key mm-hmm. to socialism. And if they could establish democracies in these Eastern European countries, then people would vote in the eventual tyrants that would rule uh, under socialism, communism, and mm. to a lesser extent, fascism. So there's there's a there's an interesting history that which is a little bit different from the track you focus on in terms of right. America's history and whatever. But we can learn so much from history; it's just unbelievable. Um, we, and we, we can't, can't couldn't be more blessed to have you as an advisor for STARS, which brings me to this question. Uh, Why did you choose to associate yourself with STARS, which is Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services? It's a 501c3 nonprofit. So what what motivated you to to join that effort? Well, my father is a veteran. He was um, in, I was actually born in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, because my father was in the U.S. Army at the time and was stationed there during the Cold War. He was keeping an eye on the East Germans. Um, And so my life was changed or, you know, determined a little differently. I wasn't born in Texas, which is where I ended up growing up, but um, because of the Cold War. And And also in writing about the American Revolution, I've written three books about the War of 1812. Um, And in writing about war you begin, you appreciate the people who lived loudly for liberty, the people who joined the army, who um, sacrificed, you know, were willing to put their life on the line for America and what America stands for. And so knowing that and seeing, you know, the 1619 project and the emphasis of division over unity in many ways that was infiltrating our culture and especially, you know, in infiltrating our military, I I wanted to join with like-minded people. And I also, even though I have a political background, having worked, you know, for a president, I found myself often trying to, to write things that were very bipartisan, that appealed to Americans regardless of their political beliefs. And the military has had a traditional non-political uh, mentality you know, um, it's it's not about politics. It's about you know uniting together and serving your country. At least that's what it's supposed to be about. And so that's why I wanted to be a part of Stars because I felt like I would fit in as the daughter of um, a veteran and understanding. Um, I can't you know fully understand um, everything that people individuals have been through who've been in the military, but I have a strong appreciation for it, and I don't want to see the military. Uh, weakened. You have to be ready, you know, to 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 serve, to um, go into combat if necessary, and that has to be the priority. Um, 
and not get into all these social issues that that erode military readiness potentially well you know i think jane what what makes that tricky is uh you know stars filed an inspector general complaint a while back because of critical race theory being taught uh at bases and, and whatever and we were told that that is not political what they're doing mm -hmm. but yet as a political scientist uh, one of my favorite authors david eastman is a political philosopher said the definition of value is pretty simple it's the authoritative or politics the simple definition of politics is the authoritative allocation of values so once you know we see it in our government in terms of budgets you know policies are all based on values and so if if we're being told that certain things are valued like you know, anti-racism, uh, you know, that sounds noble on the surface, but when you read Ibram Kendi, who writes about be, how to be an anti-racist, uh, anti-racism is not being uh, non-racist. It's recognizing that whites are discriminatory, they're oppressors, and you have to be opposed to whites. So he's saying the only way to defeat racism is to advance racism. And, and that's the tricky thing that we're dealing with today in American society, especially in our services, which is one of the big reasons why STARS was formed. But yes. what really boggles my mind, Jane, is, you know, we had a hard time getting liability insurance for directors and officers because we were told we were too controversial. And you know, we were asking, what, what is controversial about being against racism and radicalism? Right. Exactly. It's and so it seems like uh, the world is turned upside down right now, which which yeah. brings me to cancel culture and yes. its, its negative effects. I mean, as a historian, you know how important history is in understanding from where we came. You know, what is your view of the legitimacy and impact of the move to rename ships and installations that were formerly named for Confederate uh, figures? Well, you know, cancel culture, it, it's, it's a cancer really on our society. And one of the things I discovered because I've been able to use, you know, founders.archives.gov, I found um, an article that Benjamin Franklin wrote in 1731. He's about 25 years old and he was being censored and he was very upset about this. And he decided to write what he called an apology for printers. And what he did is he explained, look, he printed an ad that had a veiled insult to the clergy. It wasn't an ad that he wrote. Someone else wrote it. He published it. He said, look, I need to explain to you what free speech and free press is, are, because he, it was new back then to publish a newspaper. So he was being canceled and people were saying that they weren't going to take his paper. Okay. But then they were going to socially ostracize him. So it wasn't just, oh, we're just not going to buy your paper. It was, we're going to remove you from society as an acceptable person. That is cancel culture. And so he went on to explain that, hey, as a printer, my job is about opinions. If you buy shoes, it doesn't matter what your opinion is or the, the opinion of the person selling you the shoes. But publishing is chiefly about opinion. And he said, when there's a disagreement, 
it's it's important that you allow both sides or multiple sides to be presented and give the reader an opportunity to think for themselves and come to their own conclusion. And he said, when truth and error have fair play, truth will be an overmatch for error. And you think about him as a scientist being, you know, putting forward different hypotheses, you have to have some freedom to get it wrong. And what he did is this article was published by other newspaper publishers and it became the standard for newspaper publishing, for freedom of speech, for freedom of the press. And that was born out of cancel culture. And Ben Franklin also had lived through his brother being put in prison for publishing a newspaper. And that was government cancel culture. And so what I see today, whether it's renaming a base and or changing um, the brand Aunt Jemima, um, which was actually named after a woman, Nancy Green was the original Aunt Jemima, you know, her, her historical, she was the Food Network star of her era, and she's now been erased. Um, you know, when I see these things happen, it's not to try to put forward fair play and let the best idea win. It's an intention to suppress a certain viewpoint and to let another viewpoint um, thrive at, and suppress others. And we've seen it throughout our culture and we, it's, it's definitely a cancer that, that has to be, re, you know, reined in. And as far as the, you know, the, the, the thing about historical naming of bases and things, what a lot of people probably don't realize is that one way after the civil war to bring back the United States into one country was to allow the Confederacy, the, the, the South, to honor their war dead. And to that was a way to unite and to bring try to bring America together. And so we can look back and say, hey, you know, we, we now have, there's unanimity that slavery was wrong and should not have, ex you know, been allowed to exist as long as it did. Uh, but we have to kind of, we do need to keep things in historical context and understand and not impose where we are today, post-civil rights movement of the 1960s, and expect people who lived 100 years ago to have those same understandings that we do today. Wow, that, that's a very powerful uh, explanation, Jane. Uh, I, I read a great speech by Admiral Benjamin Muriel, given the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Mm. And I think the title was The Right to Fail. And it was very mm -hmm. powerful. And he was sending an alarm signal in terms of a lot of the ideological forces that were playing out in America during that time in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And the, the title of the speech was based upon an experience that he had as a young ensign in Haiti. Mm -hmm. And so they were there trying to rebuild that country. And mm -hmm. so he'd been there a couple of years. He finally asked one of his fellow Haitian workers that, how come you never say thank you for what we're trying to do for you? Mm -hmm. And the Haitian said, well, you're doing everything for us. You're not giving us the right to fail. Mm -hmm. So the right to fail, I, yeah. I thought that was a pretty powerful message. And it really kind yeah. of speaks to what you're talking about in terms of, right. yeah, uh, slavery was wrong and advancing it was wrong, but we went through it we we survived on our own terms and so right. there's another great essay and i and i know you're familiar with it by john stuart mill it's called 
the contest in America. And it was published in Fraser Magazine, April of 1862. So we're a year into the Civil War. Yeah. And so the contest in America, he was presenting an argument to the British elite not to intervene in our Civil War. Mm. England was, was a textile economy, critically yeah. dependent upon importing cotton from the southern states. But Mill said, you know, this is an important issue. And Lincoln is trying to solve this within the context and constraints of their constitution. And there's a famous quote towards the end where he talks about wars and ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. Uh, very powerful essay. But, you know, we, we can't afford to erase things that we've been through as a nation, uh, good and bad. Uh, and to be able to understand it uh, with a healthy perspective. But I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to come back to ideology. But you've recently finished another book. Can you tell us a little bit about it and what message you are trying to deliver? So I have a manuscript called A Great and Grateful Nation, Our Miraculous Founding. And what I, I had several things kind of converged in my mind to realize that, you know, people want to want to learn and read, but they're busy. And I had the idea of looking at gathering illustrations, art that has been done about the American Revolution to help let the art tell the story and do shorter essays to give you the story of the American Revolution that you can digest very quickly. But I wanted to do it from the theme of gratitude. And I looked back to see, you know, how, how did giving thanks play a role in the development of our country? And what I realized is I don't think we would have become a country, much less a great country, without this universal quality of gratitude. Because what I discovered is that at the Thanksgiving table at the Adams family home in 1765, they had this debate over the Stamp Act. And within six months, they were having another Thanksgiving because the King had repealed the Stamp Act and they had a day of thanks in July of 1766. And I kept coming across these proclamations, a Jewish prayer that was published in 1766. We would win a battle in the American Revolution. We'd set aside a day of thanks. George Washington had his men set aside days of giving thanks. And it was this gratitude attitude that led us to have the perspective that we needed to see God's hand in the development of our nation and to collectively have that healthy perspective. And I think that perspective is kind of is what we need today to be grateful for the great things and good things in our history and then to have and to be able to have a conversation about the issue of slavery and to keep that into perspective, not being grateful for slavery, but being grateful that we overcame slavery. You know, that we we had to fight a war to conquer it, but also to be able to look back and say, oh, the first anti-slavery pamphlet was published in 1700, but nothing was done about it until after the Declaration of Independence anywhere. And then you see seven, six months after the Declaration of Independence, 11, I think it's 11 slaves petitioned Massachusetts and said, hey, we, we want part of this Declaration of Independence for us. We want to be free. And 
they talked about Christianity, that it was a, not part of Christianity. You know, slavery didn't jive with Jesus Christ. And they didn't get freed in that moment. But by the end of the war, a judge in Massachusetts declared slavery illegal in Massachusetts. Yeah. So by the end of the American Revolution, one state had already you know, freed its slaves. And so the story of abolition is much more incremental than what we are taught, because you begin to see that ideology, that abolitionist ideology spread slowly, but to different states. And that's why when we get to the Civil War, we have, you know, free states and slave states. We could have all been slave states, but we weren't because of the ideology in the Declaration of Independence that people took to heart and began to make changes. So that's what I mean by perspective, is Good. being able to look at it that way, you know, and see things yeah. from that lens. Yeah, which is so healthy. I mean, it's it's recognizing that we've made mistakes over the years and whatever, uh, right. but being able to learn from them and to to move forward is, I mean, that's really what made America great, I think. Right. But let right. me let me shift back to uh, what national leader do you most admire and why? I would say it's definitely George Washington uh, because of his willingness to to lead by example, but but to make those tough decisions and yet he kept an optimism about him. He told his brother, wrote a letter to his brother in December of 1776. He said, I think the game is pretty near up, but he would not give way to pessimism. He said, but under a full persuasion of the justice of our cause, I think it will only remain behind a cloud for a little while. He had that hope. And we know that, you know, within a few days, he made the decision to launch a surprise attack against the British at Trenton by crossing the Delaware River. Yet he knew that it was almost over. He'd lost New York. His men were about to walk um, on the 31st of December. Their enlistments were up. The game truly was almost up, but he kept it alive and he kept that remnant alive. And he was about preserving the army more than battlefield glory. He would retreat to preserve his men rather than die a glorious, you know, death on the battlefield that some, you know, might consider glorious. He, he, and that's what I think made him great. And then, you know, even as president, years after the American Revolution, he keeps reminding the people of the invisible hand that led us through the, the revolution, that led us through the crisis of coming up with a new constitution. He kept the perspective that life was not about him. And uh, that it was truly about about the cause. It was about America, and I think that that sticks with me about George Washington. Wow, Jane. Which which brings me back to what we're dealing with today. I mean, what you're describing is is leadership that's based upon just a solid set of principles and selfless service. I mean, wants to protect his troops versus glory and whatever uh, the air force's second core value service before self mm -hmm. uh, i mean it's a sense of duty and foregoing personal pleasures and satisfactions for a greater good which brings us back to a domestic enemy 
that I think most military people are not prepared to recognize or deal with. I mean, the external enemy, the foreign threat is always more visible and more pressing. But when we deal with ideologies like critical race theory, which has a Marxist lineage from critical yeah. theory with the Frankfurt School, then critical right. legal theory, and now critical race theory. And now we've got this diversity, inclusion, and equity uh, concepts going on across the entire federal government to include our military. Uh, I didn't realize this until one of our other advisors, as you know, Elaine Donnelly, uh, brought to our attention that in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2009, a military leadership diversity commission was chartered. Mm. And months later, in February of 2009, we start to see Department of Defense directives and instructions establishing diversity and inclusion within the military structure. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think a lot of people realize how dangerous that is. It's, 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 it's establishing systemic racism. I mean, right. you know, we're being told there's systemic racism, white superiority and, and that sort of thing. But the 1964 Civil Rights Act outlawed it. Right. Outlawed discrimination. Right. But now, you know, right after that, the affirmative action uh, business. And now, uh, today I read where the NFL has put out a policy that, uh, through the Washington Examiner, that all new hires for offensive coordinators uh, can be neither a non-white male or must be a woman. That's the NFL, National Football League, just put out a policy this morning about that. And so a lot of this is related to this ideology we're being told about oppressors and the oppressed with critical race theory. So do we need a George Washington today to preserve our military and to keep it intact as opposed to uh, being an advocate or a spokesman for some of this dangerous ideology? I definitely think that we do. Um, George Washington warned us against political parties. He said, the name American belongs to you in your national capacity. You have, you know, slight shades of differences among you. And, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, he was explaining that regardless of what state you come from, your locality, your religious beliefs, um, that the name American needs to be the highest priority in bringing people together. And, you know, the concept of, of equity is a communist concept. It's a quality of outcome. It sounds nice if you don't know what it means, but it doesn't mean equality. It means an equal outcome, which is an unrealistic, you know, expectation. Um, and so it's, it's sort of an, it's an insidious, uh, it's, it sounds good on some levels, but when you dig into it, you realize that it's creating, um, an unfair, unjust system. And so, yeah, I think we definitely need voices of the caliber, you know, um, or even close to the caliber of George Washington to, to help bring some common sense to, um, and, you know, I grew up post-civil rights. I was born after the civil rights movement of the 1960s. I was um, on, you know, I experienced busing and integration. I had classmates um, who were African-American and I never knew a segregated world like my parents did. 
You know, I never experienced that. And so, you know, from my perspective, my generation, Generation X, we have kind of lived the life that I think people wanted for, wanted Americans to live and to grow from. And I feel like we're going backwards in, in many, many ways. And that's not what, that's not what we want for our future, for our kids. Um, we want everyone to have a fighting chance um, with, you know, education and opportunities. And we want our military, when you're on the battlefield, it doesn't matter the race or ethnicity of the, the people in your group. Your, your goal is to keep everyone alive and to work together. And you all, you know, that, that, that cohesion doesn't need all the, the division. You know, diversity has a place to some degree in appreciating and making sure, you know, that there is opportunity, but it, but in the, but at the end of the day, it has to be about with the military, um, unit cohesion and military readiness and people, I don't think are wise enough to, or not, I shouldn't say wise enough. People probably just aren't unaware of the, the origins, the, the communist Marxist origins of critical race theory and how um, it's an ideology that really doesn't fit the United States of America. Well, from a, a broader perspective, <clears throat> we think about how this ideology is, is being endorsed and sanctioned by our leaders. Uh, we've been experiencing a pandemic now for a couple years plus. I remember in March, I'm in Colorado, when the governor issued lockdowns and shutting down businesses and, and whatever, you know, it really kind of concerned me. I, I appreciated how contagious COVID was and whatever. I even received two vaccinations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have to be honest, I, I'm not 100%. I, I'm still trying to recover from, wow. uh, from that experience. Mm -hmm. uh, my my concern is we see some things happening that kind of look like conditions that emerged in Eurasia in the early part of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was kind of subtle. It was insidious the way it, it really kind of creeped up on, on people. Right. For instance, Hitler was elected democratically into his position. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Russia was a little bit different. I mean, they went through a revolution with the Bolshevik right. revolution. So that was kind of forced. Uh, but I, I, my own feeling is that America is vulnerable right now with mm -hmm. a lot of things that are happening. Mm -hmm. And so STARS was formed really to try to stem some of that. And yeah. so what, what would you recommend to STARS, uh, things that we might do um, to identify and stem the racism and radicalism that right now is playing out in America? Well, I think STARS has been doing a good job of putting out articles and getting in, getting a presence into um, the, the news article world. I think that's an important place to start. I think, you know, hosting some honest dialogues, um, on video, I think is a, is a way to help do, um, to help 
bring awareness to the issue and then have, you know, some honest discussions within. And I, I think um, a lot of the power of STARS is what I've observed is General Bishop, the leader of STARS, has a very wonderful style about him. He, um, he listens and gathers the opinions of different people and takes it in and then approaches behind the scenes people in the military and brings issues to their attention. And so the, I think the behind the scenes part of STARS has probably been its most effective uh, pursuit. I mean, and, and I know that that's hard for someone from the outside to not see, you know, the, the public side is different, but it's, but that's really important to be able to nurture a dialogue with leaders, existing leaders within military and to bring things to their attention in a way that is respectful. And I think a lot of what we see in politics sometimes is that the vitriol and the anger and the butting heads and the debates that you see on TV. And I think um, the STARS approach has been a refreshing approach by, by truly listening and approaching from a respectful tone. I think that's been a really good, a good thing. Um, and, you know, our culture could use a lot more of that than the butting well, of heads on television. <laughs> And of course, we've been we've been blessed to have your expertise and insights uh, to guide us too, Jane. And we really appreciate that. A uh, couple couple more questions. And we'll we'll bring this sure. to a close. Doris Kearns Goodwin, another historian, uh, has compared President Obama to Abraham Lincoln. When I read that, I thought, "Wow, that's a pretty bold comparison." Yeah. Uh, do you think that's a fair comparison? You know, I think that she was, she wrote a, a book about, I think a team of rivals and she was looking at Lincoln's cabinet and how diverse it was. And she was comparing, a, a, you know, President Obama's cabinet from her perspective, I think to, to a, you know, diverse team of thinkers. But, you know, I was, it was really interesting. I, I first time I ever did television for Fox, I guess the second time, was during the transition between President Bush and President Obama. And I was asked to address the transition. And that transition was very smooth. And there was not a lot of open controversy. Whatever conflicts there were, were being handled behind the scenes. And I think that's because President Bush knew, you know, what, what we had experienced as a team coming in and the W's were, you know, ripped off the keyboards after the gore conflict with Vice President Gore and, and President Bush didn't want that. So there was a smooth transition. But historically, we are now seeing, and it's taken a while to, to be able to see it, the Russia collusion narrative. Uh, I think President Obama's role in the transition between his administration and President Trump's administration will significantly diminish his legacy in the long term, I think, in the long run. And the more we learn about all of what happened, the, the, the uglier it gets and the shine comes off. Um, the, the, because if you're truly committed to the United States of America, 
you are going to, to, to embrace the democratic process and allow a peaceful transfer of power and not allow the next administration to be sabotaged unfairly. And I think that the history will look at President Obama, I think, differently than maybe we even look at him right now. And that's the, that's the beauty of a historical perspective is that, you know, you mentioned COVID. The whole time through COVID, I keep thinking, how is history going to remember this? How, and, then, and the more I've learned about scientists who tried to raise the alarms about certain policies and they were not allowed, you know, they were censored by Dr. Fauci. And why is it that we didn't have a team of outside doctors um, advising as well? Like, why wasn't it an all hands on deck kind of approach? Why was it sort of a one person, one doctor telling us what to do? And, you know, I think the historical lens, the big picture um, you can't always see in the moment, just like your concerns about where we are economically and the vulnerability um, and comparing that to the vulnerability of um, 100 years ago and what happened after that. You know, that the big picture perspective is really what history should be and, and being able to see um, trends and things. And so I, I imagine that, um, you know, Harry Truman, when he went out of office, he was not very popular. And then 50, 60 years later, his presidency was looked at quite differently and and more favorably. And so, um, you know, it, it things can change both in the positive and the negative direction as you learn more things. And as, you know, things become unclassified, um, you learn more things, too. So. Well, <clears throat> one of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. <clears throat> and I could I, I could identify with him uh, when I was a second lieutenant right out of the academy. I had a chance oh. to visit Mamie Eisenhower at Mamie's oh. cabin at the Augusta National Golf Course, one-on-one -on -one wow. for two hours. Wow. And she was very complimentary of Richard Nixon, even though he was undergoing a, the investigation for Watergate at the time, oh. and said that he respected the office too much to let it go through an impeachment. Hmm. And and as we know, he resigned. But yeah. her own husband, Dwight, was I think underappreciated in history, in terms of the role that he played in rebuilding the international system for the most part after the Second hmm. World War. And so, as a historian, I, I would I know we don't have time today, but I would really love to get your insights on on Eisenhower and the role he played mm -hmm. in in our country. Yeah. But I, I, I want to wrap it up with one last question with another president. Okay. And this is um, President Biden gave a speech in Warsaw, Poland this past Saturday. As a historian, what did you think about it? Uh, he mentioned uh, the Pope, Pope John Paul, be not afraid, but never mentioned Reagan or Thatcher mm -hmm. you know, when he was talking about the wall coming down and the Cold War ending. Well... You know, it was Ronald Reagan who said to Mr. Gorbachev, you know, tear down this wall, um, open this gate. And, you know, Ronald Reagan had the, the view, he was very aware of communism and was very anti-communism. And that, that really drove a lot of his outlook on life and, and policy. And, it, you know, common courtesy would be, would have been appropriate I think on President Biden's part to to mention their roles and to 
to see things kind of from a, a bigger vantage point uh, that would have that would have helped. But, you know, the Poland's an interesting place because it's gone back and forth on its authority. Um, it's been, you know, more of its land has been taken and given back in conflicts over centuries. And, um, you know, the Polish people are a strong people. And, you know, the, the reason why we have some of what's going on with Russia and Ukraine is the, the, the there was a Warsaw Pact and there was a NATO Pact after World War II. And it's the shift in dynamics of how many countries have come into NATO and there, there's a whole big, there's a whole lot to it. And I think you're right that we don't quite have all the information right now to assess all of that. But I will just say that America, I wrote a book called American Phoenix about John Quincy Adams. And he was our first top U.S. ambassador to Russia. And he turned uh, Russia from a foe into an ally who helped us with the War of 1812. And this was pre-Soviet era. It was 100 years before the Bolshevik Revolution. And, you know, countries do, um, they're not as static as we sometimes think they are. And so our relationship with Russia actually started out very differently than it is right now. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to be the way it is right now. And I think that's kind of the hope that history tells us is that we you know, just like the wall did come down. Um, the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union broke up. Um, but now we have other things we have to to contend with and deal with. And um, both, you know, in, the enemy within that we have to worry about um, right now and the, 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 the stress that's put on us, COVID, you know, all of these things are, are important. But, you know, going back to that Declaration of Independence that we believe that all men, women, we're all created equal and, uh, you know, and we all have inalienable rights because of a creator. And that premise, that ideology is, is universal. It is timeless. Um, it comes from the Old Testament. Um, it is it is hopeful ideology um, to embrace as a country and to embrace individually. And I think that I, keep, I come back to that a lot in my writings, I, I come back to that. That is what I want my kids to know and to experience. And, you know, working with stars and writing articles and, you know, talking and listening to people and sharing great hopeful things, you know, from our heritage is, is I think my way of passing on the love of patriotism to the next generation. And that's, that's really what it's all about. Well. Jane, what a great closing thought for for the interview. How can our viewers learn more about Jane Hampton Cook and your work? So I have a website, janecook.com, and I have a lot of articles there, and my books are there, and some of my interviews, and so you can learn about, about that at janecook.com. Great. Thanks, Jane. What an honor to have you for almost a whole hour here. And you <laughs> generate a ton of questions. That I'd love to follow up and, and talk sure, to you about. Sure, well, we could do another one. That would be great. Great. Thanks, Jane, for joining us today. Thank you.